Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, October 21st, 2013. During this week in history, in 1881, Pablo Picasso, one of the world's most influential artists, was born in Spain. Picasso's career spanned 80 years and resulted in over 50,000 pieces of art, including paintings, drawings, engravings, sculptures, ceramics. He did it all. Hi, I'm Giacomo Strollo. I'm the president and owner of the Strollo Design Company. Strollo Design is a product development firm located in San Diego, California. We've been developing products for our clients since we were founded in 2006. Our goal, though, has always been to develop and launch products of our own. And for the last several years, we've been developing smart jars. Now, let me get the best pronounce of your name one more time just so I have it on tape. Well, it's Italian. Giacomo. Giacomo. Okay. Oh, no, that's cool. I can say that. I'm American, so. I know. It doesn't doesn't matter. I I take out the inflection. (laughs) I know, but Giacomo is cool. I probably Americanize it anyway, but it's still a cool name, man. It's definitely unique. Yeah, and it, and it makes you sound manly and strong, Giacomo, and like, you know, you're running things, plenty of hair. <laughs> <laughs> it was Casanova's name, Giacomo. <laughs> See, I told you there was a law there. There was a draw, you know. Smart jars are durable, transparent, airtight, and food safe. They're also patented and trademarked in the USA. How long has the, the company been in existence? Smart jars is a, well, it's a spinoff of my engineering consulting firm. So I've been working as Stroller Design Company since I incorporated in 2006. Right. And yeah. I started developing smart jars pretty shortly after that, probably around 2008 timeframe is when I first had the idea for them. And yeah. it's just been something I've been working on on the side for the last, probably up until the middle of last year. And then it finally got to the point where it started gaining some steam and I had to say, hey, this is a legitimate product and we need to get it out in the marketplace. And that's when the real work begins. So, Do you feel there's a big need for smart jars? You know, absolutely. So, I, I mean, I developed a product that I couldn't find. I'm a hands-on builder type of guy. I have oh, lots, of, lots of stuff around that creates clutter, parts and pieces. Cause, a hacker. Yeah, I'm a hacker, you know. Well, the word these days is, you know, the big word is the maker community. So I'm in that space. I build stuff, whether it's food, you know, for cooking, you know, I have, I have different ingredients for everything I make, you know, the nuts and bolts or parts or pieces or whatever it is. And it's just all over the place. You know, you don't want to throw it away. You want to keep it and it sits in boxes and you never know what you have. And I've had this problem, well, since I was a little, little kid. For those who have not seen the Kickstarter video have not seen a picture of the product, why don't you maybe describe it and tell me exactly what the Smart Jar can do for me. So the Smart Jar, it's a 10 ounce plastic container with a nice tight lid on it. It's very durable. I don't consider it disposable. You put small stuff in it, close it up, seal it tightly, and it allows you to put it up on the wall and get your stuff basically organized and out of the cupboard and out of bins where it's just sitting there and disorganized. Clutter isn't pretty. Clutter doesn't help you make anything. Clutter doesn't help you use the stuff you have. So what we do is we get all this stuff, organize it, put it up on the wall and... Almost in a pegboard system, right? I left out that key point. (laughs) There's three components to it. There's a jar and there's a separate lid and then there's a dock. 
So the dock actually snaps into pegboard. And so you have pegboard up on your wall and you put these docks and arrange them where you want them. And then you put all your stuff in this jar and then you put the jar up on the wall. If you were a female, a woman, what could you use the smart jar for? Women love this. They put it up on their pegboards in their craft rooms and they put buttons and zippers, you know, basically different components for sewing and crafting, whether they be, you know, like stickers or it'll hold glitter, it'll hold any kind of small thing that you like to use for like crafting, for scrapbooking. Those are the kind of things that you'll put in this and actually get it up on the wall and out of your drawers, it'll get it off of your desk or your work area. And it's really convenient to use because the way the product works is you can pop it off of the pegboard really easily and take it to wherever you're working with it and then open it up and dispense stuff out of it. It's really a simple product. It's like, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know what? I need four drywall screws to mount something in my house. Well, I grab one of these and I take it in there and I don't have to worry about, you know, digging into a box and the screws getting all over the place. It's just a handy way to carry what you need to work with to where you're working. How has the Kickstarter community been treating you, man? You've been on for a while. We're confident we're going to hit it, but they're making us work for it, man. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. but Something I guess I could add is, you know, a lot of products hit Kickstarter before all the development's done, and we're done. I mean, we don't have the marketing spiel. We don't have the um, some packaging stuff worked out, but we have our injection molds. We did all the engineering. The product as is is ready to go out the door. All we got to do is turn on the injection molding machines. You know, I think that's great just from the perspective of, you know, it's low risk. You know, people don't have to worry about getting their parts. As long as we hit their goal, they're going out the door. They're going to ship. Okay, I see what you're saying. You're already developed, established. You're saying these aren't prototypes. And I, I look on your Kickstarter page right now, and you have estimated delivery U.S. December 2013. So you're like... I guess, like you said, ready to go. We can hit Christmas. That's what's kind of neat about this particular one is the parts themselves don't take a long time to mold. Once you turn the machine on, I mean, they just it's coughing up plastic parts one every 30 seconds or so. Right. So as soon as we hit the goal, we start molding. If anyone out there, you know, sometimes your house gets in disarray. There's stuff laying all over the place. It happens the same way at DJ Grandpa's house. And, you know, I guess if I could, if I would. It'd be cool to use smart jars. So go to kickstarter.com and check them out. To be truthful, I've tried just about every other organizational system. So, and, you know, with varying degrees of accuracy. So, and if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Giacomo and his company, the Strollo Design Company. Dude, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you. Japanese folklore contains some of the weirdest and strangest monsters you will ever see. Collectively, Japanese ghosts, ghouls, and goblins are known as yokai. There are hundreds of different kinds of yokai, and there is nothing like them outside of Japan. The Hour of Meeting Evil Dan Spirits. I'm an illustrator. It's a good title, man. Is it an anthology <laughs> or something? Graphic novel? What is it? It's an anthology, and it's kind of also like a graphic novel. It's a... Uh, Illustrated Encyclopedia of Monsters from Japanese Folklore. You've been chasing these monsters for a while. Since 2009. Wow. I started illustrating them when I was living in Japan. 
and I wanted to do something on my blog for sort of in celebration of Halloween. Right. And I wanted to sort of show people back home and, and show my blog readers something traditional in Japan that was, you know, related to Halloween. So I started looking into what kind of uh, traditional monsters they had in Japan because, you know, they don't have werewolves and vampires like we're used to here. So I started to research and discovered that not only do they have their own bunch of monsters, but there are hundreds and hundreds of them, and they're all very weird. Is it just Asian monsters in general or just Japanese? Is That's pretty much your beat. Some of them come from ancient Chinese legends too, but the majority of them are uniquely Japanese monsters. Uniquely Japanese monsters. And you say they have many more examples, like they just have tons of monsters that more than our culture does. When we think of traditional Halloween monsters, everyone could probably name, you know, maybe 10 of them really quickly. But when it comes to Japanese monsters, there's so many of them. I mean, I found over 400 in my research, and some of them go back thousands of years, some of them are only a couple hundred years old, and some of them are pretty new. So right. there's sort of been a long tradition in Japan of creating monsters and, and adding to them and making up stories. Well, what are they called? The general term for them is yokai. Yokai. Okay. All right. And they don't, con they don't, well, I don't want to seem like a jerk or anything, but do they include Mothra and Godzilla and stuff like that, Rodan? Not really. Uh, those are sort of in a separate category. People call them kaiju, kaiju, which means like giant monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that from the movies. But they're sort of like the um, modern evolution of these traditional monsters. You'll actually see a lot of similarities between old yokai and things like Godzilla and even like Pokemon. There's actually a lot of connection between them. All right. Well, you were starting to get me going when you told me maybe I could slip Godzilla or Gamera <laughs> in there or something. You yeah. Know? I grew up on them, so. But okay, let's stick to your traditional monsters, your beat. Now, I believe on your blog or, well, on your Kickstarter video, you spoke of that you had a monster or a day on there. How'd that go over? That was the original project that I started back in 2009. So I called it a yokai a day, and my goal was to paint one painting every single day for October and introduce one new yokai to my readers sort of as a Halloween celebration. That kind of ballooned in popularity and so I did it again the next year and the next year and people kept telling me, oh, you know, you should turn these into a book. We want to get a book of these. So my first book project kind of ballooned out of that. It was called The Night Parade of 100 Demons. And it was uh, based on the same idea of, you know, illustrating a whole lot of monsters and teaching people about them. So my second Kickstarter is following in that same suit. So this is my second yokai encyclopedia. I get it now. You are a graphic artist because you said painting yes. or something like that. So yes. you paint all of these and you do it around Halloween because they're monsters. But... Do the Japanese people, do they have a Halloween? like? Not really. Like uh, in Japan, actually, the time for like monsters and ghost stories is in the middle of the summer when it's really hot. Right. And the idea is telling a scary story is going to kind of chill you and cool you down. It's a big summer nighttime tradition. So you Americanize it sort of kind of like you, you sell it yeah, to Americans. Yeah, I kind of linked it to Halloween, Halloween. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, using your brain, I guess. So that's cool, man. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Unless Japanese people are complaining about it. You know? No, nobody's complained. <laughs> All 
Huh, well, what else should I know about the Hour of Meeting Evil Spirits? Great title, though, by the way. The hour Thank you. Meeting. Yeah, the, the title comes from one of the themes in the book, which is Twilight. So in Japan, the word for twilight is omagatoki. Right. And that literally translates into the Hour of Meeting Evil Spirits. So the actual word for twilight is connected with yokai and monsters. Yokai and monsters. the reason is because in old Japan, twilight is sort of the border between night and day. And That's a scary time. The idea was that monsters can easily transport between you know the world of the dead and the world of the living at that time. So if you're out and about at twilight, you've got a chance of running into something horrible. Okay, well, what's the biggest, baddest monster I should be afraid of then? Mm, that's a hard one. There's a lot. I gotta look over my shoulder, man. You're scaring me, man. What's the biggest baddest? <laughs> one of my favorite ones from this book is called The Curse of the Hour of the Ox. That doesn't sound good. And so The Hour of the Ox takes place around 2 in the morning. It's right. sort of like the midnight hour, the witching hour in, in Japanese. This is a curse that uh, it's not performed by ghosts, actually. It's performed by people. And it's usually like an angry ex-wife or an angry ex-girlfriend. And this is this very long curse that they have to perform every night at midnight. And they make a straw doll of your body and they nail it to a tree. <laughs> and they paint their body white and they visit a shrine every single day at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is the hour when the demons are most powerful. And they do this to sort of summon evil spirits and curse you. That's not cool, man. If you've got any jilted ex-girlfriends out there, you've got to be real careful. Yeah, jilted Japanese ex-girlfriends are jilted. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> Has there been uh, a Japanese folklore or evil spirit or something that we've kind of Americanized so far that we don't even realize that it's Japanese in the first place? Actually, in Hawaii, because there's such a large population of uh, Japanese immigrants... Uh, there's a lot of monsters that have made their way into Hawaii and then from Hawaii into sort of the, the west coast of the U.S. Right. And I think a lot of people might not realize that they're Japanese in origin. But there's a story called Mujina, which is about this uh, weird creature that you see on the side of the road late at night. And it looks like a person who needs help. So you go over and, and you say, hey, can I help you? Are you okay? And they turn around and they've got no face at all, just a blank orb for a head. And then you, you run screaming away and, and you run to you know the nearest shop and say, oh my God, oh my God, let me tell you what I just saw. There was a guy on the side of the road and he had no eyes and no nose, no face at all. It was horrible. And then the shopkeeper kind of looks at you and says, you mean like this? And then he wipes his own face off. <laughs> I think I saw that on Pee Wee Herman one time. Large Marge. So that's, you're freaking me out, man. I like that, man. You're really <laughs> awesome. into this, though, man. You're really oh, into yeah, this. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're fun. Man, you're the man for the job for this one, man. You could be like a regular encyclopedia ghost hunter, man. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, man. I could see this being a series for you, man. You tracking down these run amok Japanese monsters throughout the American countryside. Somehow they've escaped. We've imported Ooh, them yeah. somehow. Yeah, man. yeah, man, I can see you doing that, man. Yeah, as long as I can keep finding Japanese monsters, I'll keep uh, painting them and describing them because it's a lot of fun. Now, usually I say when I watch the video, I say beautiful, beautiful. But no, yours is creepy, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I was aiming for that. Yours <laughs> is creepy. I'm, I'm not going to go, oh, my God. No, no, it's, it's creepy, man.
but you do it well, man. You do creepy very well, man. And thank, thank you. Thank you for this treat so close to Halloween, man. That's really oh, I'm nice. Glad. Yeah, you, man. it's my pleasure. Now, for anyone out there, you know, who may get scared easily, who may be afraid of the dark, who may travel by the side of the road by yourself, lonely, <laughs> you know, at times, and you think maybe you've seen one of these type of monsters. You you went to help someone and they didn't really have a face. The man with no name. <laughs> Go to kickstarter.com and check out The Hour of Meeting Evil Spirits. It's by Matthew Mayer. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com where we'll post links for the scariest stories that you ever heard. And we got hundreds of them. Dude, I, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show, man. It was a pleasure. And Thank you so much for having me, yeah. I'm Aaron Etheridge, lead developer for Worlds of Magic. Worlds of Magic is a 4X strategy game set in a fantasy universe. How's it going, Aaron? Good, 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 man. Let me see if I can't amp the volume a bit. Yeah, it's all right. You're in a different realm, man. You're in this I whole am, video I game you thing, know, I know what's man. going on in gaming, yeah. Well, <laughs> right now, I, I mainly know what's going on with our game. It is a very busy time for us right That's now. That's all you need to, to know, man. Worlds of Magic, man. You, a lot of you guys man, seem to be based off of some sort of book or some sort of iconic event that happened in the gaming industry or in the literary industry. And, yes, absolutely. absolutely. And that's how you build a fan base, I guess. And so what's happening is, especially with a lot of the games that you see coming out of Kickstarter, right. is people are going back to their roots. People are going back to what made the golden age of gaming golden. And, of course, Worlds of Magic is one of many that's trying to capture some of that golden age, update it, bring it in line with what's going on in gaming today, right. and kind of bring about a new golden age. Well, let me ask you this, then. Everybody going, you know, reaching back for the past, quote-unquote, golden age, and that wasn't too long ago. But then, on the other hand, you have all these musicians who come on, you know, DJ Grandpa's crib, and they're all talking about reaching back for the past and the golden age and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Is this just the 70s all over again or what? <laughs> well, I, I think there's a lot of things. Myself, personally, I'm, I'm 36 years old. Right. Back when I was a child, America was in, in a very good position economically. People felt good about what was going on in the country. And it was reflected in our music, reflected in our games. Right. I, I don't study society or anything like that. My area of expertise is video games. But my own experiences have led me to believe that, yeah, people are reaching back for, you know, they relate this type of music, this type of game, television, movies, all kinds of things with a happier time in the past. And so to a certain extent, it, you know, there's a little bit of escapism there. I mean, any form of entertainment is, to a certain extent, escapism. Right. You know, we're, we're putting aside what's going on in our real life to go enjoy something fictional. Yeah, back in the day when I was a teenager, before I had status, and before That's I had right. a pager. I got you, man. I yeah, got absolutely. you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've done all this business, but we really haven't gotten down to Kickstarter business, your business, Worlds of Magic. Why don't you tell me about this game? I'm thinking it's medieval. I'm thinking it's kind of Highlander-ish. I'm thinking it's Super Mario Brothers just because <laughs> of the throwback feel. But sure. I checked out the graphics and it, it was way cool, man. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get a license to this game or somehow. I think that's the talk they use. I'd like sure. to get a license. Sure. So, Tell me about the game. The game, it's what's called a 4X strategy game. 
And it, it's set in a fantasy universe. And like you said, it's, it's medieval. You've got swords and sorcery. And the idea of the game, all 4X games, really, they are what's called procedurally generated. That means every time that a, a new game is started, the computer uses a procedure to create the game world. Right. So every time you, you hit new game, it's going to be a different game. The land masses are going to completely change, where objects are placed, what enemies you face. Everything is created via this procedure. And the idea is you start out, you've got a city that you control. Uh, you've right. got a little army that's under your control. And you, and you know a certain number of magic spells, a very limited number of spells you can use to help your soldiers win on the battlefield. So the four X's of four X games are explore, the first thing you got to do, you got to look around. You've got to find out where the resources are that you can use to make your empire grow and flourish. Okay. You've got to expand your empire. Okay. One city isn't going to do it. You're not going to be able to win the game with that. You've got to train settlers, found new cities, or conquer the cities of your enemies and, you know, incorporate them into your empire. Greed. You've got to uh, exploit the resources around. And this is both natural resources like gold you might find in the mountains, yeah. uh, you know, a river that is uh, close enough where you can found a town. Uh, you've got to exploit your enemies. You mean i got to be a robber baron? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Something like that. These games of military conquest, yes, it is very much like being a robber baron. Oh, okay. What's the fourth one? Exterminate, actually. Oh. The idea is that you're a sorcerer lord. Right. in the game. That is the persona you take on. You are facing off these other sorcerer lords that are trying to gain control of the universe. Now, okay. exterminate, you, that doesn't mean you literally have to kill them, but you drive them out of the game. Okay. You, you right. Drive them out. Of, okay. Let's say I'm DJ Grandpa Sorcerer and Lord, mm -hmm. and I got my apprentice helm splitter with me. Sure. And let's sure. say I'm about to extinguish a kingdom. About to right. make that move, and all of a sudden, the most important call happens in the world, caller ID. Can I sure. hit pause on this before I have to split this guy? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The thing is, it, it is actually a turn-based strategy game, which is one of the things I should have mentioned in the very beginning, which means it's like chess. There are differences, obviously. For instance, in Worlds of Magic, you can right. move all your pieces on the board during a single turn. But basically, you take a turn, then your opponent takes a turn. Okay. When it's your turn... Uh, you can take as long as you want. You can get up and make a pot of coffee. When it's the computer's turn, you can pause it. You don't have to sit there watching it. If you're playing against a friend, you'll have to say, hold on, i got to get the phone, you know. But really, the, the fact of the matter is, when it's the other opponent's turn, they're going to do what they do, and you don't have, you can't respond anyway. So you can say, look, I'm going to answer the phone. You go do your moves, and we'll talk about what you did when I get back. So oh. it, it's, you know, totally, it works with any kind of schedule. Yeah. If you got a bunch of kids, no problem. You know, no amount of interruption is going to ruin your game. I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe that. Yeah. Nice try. You're a good sales, but I don't thank believe you, that. Thank you, thank you. I do my best to sell the idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that sounds cool, man. Worlds of Magic. And you got a good name, man. I thought all the good names are gone. The producer came up with that. I think, you know, it's simple and it sells. For anyone out there who likes video games, who likes... 4X turn strategy video games. I'm not exactly sure what I said, but I believe I said it right this <laughs> you, time. You were close enough. You right. were absolutely close enough. Check out Kickstarter.com and go to Worlds of Magic. I've checked out this game. It seems pretty cool to me, actually. Yes. I, like I yes, said, it I'd is, like to, I assure you. Yeah, yeah. Hit me with a license. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's but, right. But anyway, if you can't find Worlds of Magic there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Aaron and his company Wastelands Interactive US. 
Dude, I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. We fob deep. The infamous refugee geniuses, the elite chic of the nerdy kids, the alternatives to alternatives. Things have changed. Asian Americans are putting their thing down, making music, shooting videos, gaining fans. Support is growing, and the talent and drive are there like a mother. Chops. Chops. I like that. Okay, what's this project then? You gotta tell us for those who don't have that Kickstarter page open like I do. So the project is called Strength in Numbers. It's an Asian American music compilation. I'll give a little bit of background on myself. I was part of a group called Mountain Brothers, and we were the first Asian American rap group to get signed to a major label. This was back in the very late 90s. Yeah. And you know, this whole time I've kind of had this dream of working with a bunch of different Asian American talent. Right. You know, I started out with my group, you know, we made a couple of strides here and there, and the guys continued on to do kind of the straight and narrow path, and they went on to like respectable careers. <laughs> <laughs> and me, I just know how to do music, you know, I, I never really... Um, you didn't straighten out. That's exactly, I guess that's it, I didn't straighten out. Right. And I definitely focused more on music than anything else, you know, my entire life. And fortunately, I've been able to go on and work with a bunch of different people, production-wise. You know, I've, I've worked with... Um... You know you're going to have to name drop, don't you? Okay. <laughs> Some of the people that I've worked with include uh, The Lonely Island, Nicki Minaj, Bun B, Little Wayne, The Game, Ice Cube, E-40, Snoop, Talib Kweli, Raekwon from Wu-Tang Clan. Mm -hmm. uh, so one thing that I wanted to do, again, is kind of do a statement kind of project, you know, something to kind of show that there are Asian Americans with ability that's comparable to what's out there. You know what I mean? No. And... I mean, yes, I do know. <laughs> I was about to say, no. <laughs> no, I don't know what you mean, but um, yeah, yes, I, I do know what you mean. <laughs> Again, when I, when I first started, it was not easy to find other artists, other groups, you know, there weren't the same methods of communication that you have now. You know, it's much easier to link with people, get in touch, discover artists that make music that you might like. So, you know, fast forward a whole bunch of years, and I was able to get in touch with just over 30 artists that agreed to work on the project, people that I'm fans of and people that I respect musically. And we put this together. It took about two years, and the music is just about ready. And so we have this Kickstarter page to kind of support the finishing process, you know, and help to get the word out. How is the Kickstarter community responding? It's going pretty well so far. And this is my first go at a Kickstarter, right? So there's, there's a definite inexperience factor. One of the first pieces of news that we had was that, you know, that I got my group back together for the project. They were kind enough to take time out of their schedule, you know, to join in and participate with everybody, you know, the, the more current artists that are on the project. And we also have a video out for my group, and it's gotten us a little bit of attention, and I'm pretty happy about that so far, but we have a lot of work to do still. There's a lot more that I would like to get done in, in the way of music videos. And that's not just to support the Kickstarter itself, but to kind of let people know more about the music and the project and the artists itself because 
these days it's tough to move music by itself. You need visual, you need images, and that's just really how things have gone. So one thing that I'm trying to do is get together more visuals, more music videos, and things like that. The video I saw on your Kickstarter page is that your new song with the with the girl in it singing. Her name is Anne One. That's what she goes by. And she was kind of, I would say, the closest thing they had to like a Whitney or a Mariah or like a Christina Aguilera kind of thing. You know what I mean? She has songs that she she did, you know, years ago now. That the younger kids that you know they do singing competitions, kind of like American Idol, that kind of stuff.、Mm-hmm. They sing her songs to show their skill, the way that somebody would sing like a Whitney song. Here. I could tell that she was hot. I, I heard. <laughs> She's a total package. There's a pretty good range of different sounds on the project, you know. Partly just because there's artists from all around the country, you know. There's people based out of LA. There's artists based out of New York. So there's, you know, I kind of tried to go track-wise. To suit their sound and fit them, not just artistically but geographically too. You know, there's a couple of artists from Atlanta. I should name names, yeah. Yeah, it couldn't hurt. So, for instance, you know, out of Atlanta, we have two rappers by the name of Mike Bars and Timothy Flew, and there's a group called Yellow Boys. So they have one of the tracks that I'm known for musically is a track that I did for Bun B and Lil Wayne called "Damn I'm Cold." And the track that I did with Timothy Flew and Mike Bars is kind of reminiscent of that. It has like the same kind of southern, like organs and blues guitar kind of feel to it. That's one that I'm particularly happy about. The Yellow Boys have kind of more of a fun-loving kind of thing. They have more of a like a loose, like party vibe kind of thing, you know. But it's it's still a southern, like Atlanta thing that they have going. One of the bigger artists on the project, his name is Dumbfounded. He's going by Parker now. He grew up in LA's freestyle battling circuit. You know, like he he was raised among people that that battled and freestyled, and that's how he cut his teeth. That's how he made his mark. It's battling people, and you know, there's been a big phenomenon where people would you know put up these battles on video and stuff, and, and put them on YouTube and things like that. And he really made a name for himself doing that. And one thing that he's done that's different than a lot of battle rappers is he's gone beyond just doing that and. And progressed into making songs the way that a lot of battle rappers have not. You know, that was one collab that I'm pretty excited about. Oh, we've also got a couple of appearances from not just America but from overseas too.、Uh, a friend of mine named Verbal from a group called M Flow and a group called Teriyaki Boys is from Japan. Him and a singer named Matt Cab did a joint that I'm really happy about. And also two of Ann's friends. From Korea, they're Asian American, but they live and they they work out of Korea. They were originally from the U.S. Their names are Tiger J.K. and Tasha, Drunken Tiger. They have a really, really huge following, and they do all kinds of different music. But they agreed to do like an up-tempo dance-type joint for this project, which I'm I'm really excited about, and hopefully we'll have a video for it. I don't know if it's going to happen in time for the end of the Kickstarter, but I'm hoping. Dude, this is actually cool, man. Because I thought I thought it was like all these different maybe producers, you know, like a rap album kind of an Asian version, but with a, a rap album laden with all these producers and then all these highlight rappers and singers and stuff. But it almost feels like this is like one of those. Dr. Dre presents or something, except but it's Chops presents, and then you got all these other people layered around you. 
when I was growing up and, and learning about producers and learning about producing, I always looked up to people that did projects, you know, with a bunch of different artists, people like Dr. Dre, people like Timbaland. I always liked the fact that they could show versatility in their music and the fact that they could, you know, make a statement by working with people that are either from their area or, you know, just people that they click with musically. And that's what I'm trying to do here for sure. All right. Now, for anyone out there, I want you to go to Kickstarter.com. I don't even know why I'm saying Kickstarter.com, but go to Kickstarter and check out Strength in Numbers. It's the Asian American Music Project, and it also is global because it has cats from Korea and other countries tacked on there, but they still hot. And if you can't find it there, for all the links you need, go to DJGrandpa.com, and we'll have some... Uh, we're going to have some fresh links for these cats, man. I'm really looking forward to this album. Getting a download and checking it out because I want to see what Chops is up to now. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I do, I do, I do. Wanna Hi, my name is Sydney Freeland. I'm the writer-director of Dry Lake slash Drunktown's Finest. I'm a Native American filmmaker, born and raised in New Mexico. Drunktown's uh, Finest on Kickstarter. Native American culture, which I've never covered before on Kickstarter. Oh, wow. I would appreciate it if you would tell me about Drunktown's Finest. Enlighten me, please. Uh, I'm Navajo and Scottish. I was born and raised on the Navajo Reservation in uh, New Mexico in a small town called Gallup. You know, when I was growing up, my hometown, Gallup, New Mexico, was labeled, you know, it was notorious for its sort of drinking problems and, you know, this high rate of alcoholism. And, you know, it supposedly had the highest rate of, like, alcohol-related death in the country. Wow. At one point, there was, like, 65 bars in this town, you know, for a town of, like, 20,000 people. Basically, it got this really bad reputation. And the sort of the pinnacle of all this was when the ABC show 2020 came in and did a segment on my town called Drunk Town USA. So this is probably like late 80s. So I was, you know, in elementary school. But for some reason, that always sort of like um, made an impression on me because, you know, it was a big deal to have this sort of film crew come in from, you know, the big city in New York or LA or whatever, and shoot a segment on my hometown. But it always sort of struck me how, you know, they came in and did this thing on Drunk Town USA. And they basically just focused on the problems with alcohol and the problems with drinking and all this other stuff. But I wondered why they weren't really focusing on all this other stuff, you know, because I had aunties, I had uncles, I had cousins, I had people on the reservation who were doing things, you know. There were doctors, there were teachers, they were, you know, there were everything else. Well, what is the film actually about? So the film is about three Native American teenagers who are growing up in a similar type of town. They're all trying to, quote unquote, get off the reservation, but they're all trying to do it through different means. You know, so one is trying to go into the military, one is going off to college, one is trying to become a model. It's sort of about how these people growing up in this community, you know, they don't see anything positive about it. But in the process of trying to get out of this town, they sort of like learn to reconnect with their culture and their heritage and where they come from. Is that how it happened for you? Yeah, I wanted to get off the reservation, but it's sort of in the same way that, you know, like any small town kid wants to, you know, go off to the big city, I guess. 
Right. So that's kind of where I was coming from. You know, basically packed my bags and as soon as I graduated high school and just took off. Are reservations, and I'm not trying to be rude, but are reservations sure. bad places? Are they are they like ghettos? Like if you're a kid and, and you're in the ghetto and you think that things or life must be better outside of the ghetto and you just want to try and escape and maybe make a better life for yourself, are Indian reservations kind of like that? It's this weird sort of mix, you know, because there is a lot of poverty. There is, you know, a lot of like alcoholism. There is a lot of sort of violence and stuff that goes on. I believe my reservation has an unemployment rate of like 60% or something. Right. But at the same time, there's also this like really rich culture and this really rich heritage, which a lot of people actually don't really have. Okay. Well, what about your movie? I mean, how great was it? I mean, this is like six years, seven years in the making for you, man. How is it to actually put this film together or get so close to the end? What does it feel like? It's so bizarre to talk about the film in the past tense because I spent so long and it was such a huge roller coaster ride to try to get this thing made. I was constantly thinking, like, there's no way we're going to shoot this. No, there's no way we're going to shoot this. Right. And, um, you know, we we're fortunate enough to get funding this past summer and we shot the film and, you know, we shot it in 15 days, which is an insane schedule. That's true. But we were able to shoot it, and now we're editing in Los Angeles, and we're, you know, we're like at the very last step, and um, we're trying to, you know, just raise finishing funds. The comparison I would make is like, um, you know, that how they have the Olympics, right? And then they have like the hundred meter sprint or the two hundred meter sprint, and yeah. you have like it's only once every four years, <laughs> but like four years you have these guys like training, 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 yeah, and then you know for a ten second race. Yeah, your life sucks for those pre four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then there's no guarantee you're going to win anything at the end of those four years. But that's sort of how I feel. You know, I feel like I, I got a chance to run in the Olympics, and right. you know, and uh, what's next? You got this Kickstarter, and let's say you get funded, you get funded, and you get these what you call finishing funds. Yeah. What other impossible goal are you going to set up for yourself to do next? Well, the first thing we want to do is finish this film. So. We finished our 10th week of editing right. and uh, we've submitted for the Sundance Film Festival. And so now we sort of sit back and wait right. and see what we hear back from the festival. You know, there's no guarantee we'll get in. But like, you know, if we get the finishing funds, it'll it'll really help with, you know, like some color corrections some reshoots, some pickup shots, post audio, stuff like that. Everyone go check out Drunk Town's Finest on Kickstarter. I still say, or I say that it's a very cool film, and kind of excited to see the end of it, actually. It's conclusion or a screen cut or something. Actually, I'll tell you the truth. I really do think it's very cool to learn about other cultures, and that's why I wanted to talk to Sydney because I'm very excited about other cultures. I guess you're always thinking like the grass is green on the other side or something like that. Maybe that's what it is. But Sydney, thank you very much for coming on the show and giving me a chance to, to check out your movie. Oh, yeah. Thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. You know, and, uh, you know, and, and the whole thing with my movie is like, you know, it's it's to basically try to get people to be able to relate to these people, because like you're saying, this is like a seemingly exotic environment with all these like unfamiliar people, but 
what I'm trying to get across in my story is that these are people just like everyone else. They have problems just like everyone else. They have struggles just like everyone else. And it's about, you know, it's about how similar we all are as opposed to how different we all are. I can understand it. That's that's the making of a classic story. Cool. That's what it's all about, telling a good story. Yeah. Everyone, my name is Jamie Thompson, and me and Mark Smith wrote the Way of the Tiger books way back in the 80s. We're putting the Way of the Tiger books back on the market with this wonderful Kickstarter by Mega Entertainment. They're really high. Hello, how's it going, Richard? Hello. Going all right. How are things with you? Uh, everything's going pretty well. Reading up on your Way of the Tiger uh, Kickstarter there, and Wow, yes. man, it, it's some serious business you've gotten yourself into. I've read a little bit in the comments section. We got Ninja, we got Adventure, we got full-color graphics. What more do you need? Would you like to tell me what this series, Way of the Tiger, is for anyone who doesn't know who may be interested in checking out your Kickstarter? Mmm, The Way of the Tiger. Yeah, I haven't asked that question. The Way of the Tiger is intense martial arts action in a world of weird fantasy. Otherwise known as, it's a game book, what would have back in the 80s been called a choose-your-own-adventure book, but that's a copyrighted term, and in fact, the choose-your-own-adventure people themselves did show up on Kickstarter recently. You might not have noticed that. Did you notice that? I missed that one, but I've seen so many choose-your-adventure books on Kickstarter. So this is uh, the sort of book where you don't just read from start to end. You read a paragraph or so, and it says, if you want to do this, turn to that page. If you want to do this, turn to that page instead. The thing with The Way of the Tiger is it's um, more familiar to people who play role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons right. in that it has an actual character sheet where you write down the items you've picked up, and you can get into fights, you can get killed, all sorts of exciting things. And um, The Way of the Tiger is particularly good in that respect. It's uh, got a more complex, detailed action system where you choose martial arts moves. You decide oh, cool. what resources to expend as you go through the game. So your decisions really are uh, life and death and require strategy. I know, but you have a lot of expectations to meet, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's the um, almost 30 years of people who know these books waiting for us to do something good with them. You know, we've managed to hook our claws into uh, something good from the 80s and trying to bring it back, fancy new version, and extend it. And we are uh, in communication with the original authors. We've got their approval on everything. And you're, like, critiquing some of the work, like the book six or something, you know, like... Oh, yeah. Had a few problems, and you guys are working together to solve some of that. So I, I just think it's touchy issues all, of, all the way around. Long before we uh, launched the project for real, we did this right. sort of soft launch in August where we tried to tell everybody who might be interested hey, we think we're going to uh, relaunch The Way of the Tiger. Would you like to come by and tell us what you think? And by golly, people came by and told us what they thought. <laughs> yeah, there were more comments on that than there are currently on the Kickstarter project itself. People had a lot of thoughts about how the art is supposed to look, because, of course, the art is pretty much the only thing we can show off, right? I mean, what are we going to do, post several hundred pages and pages and pages of books online? Yeah, so yeah, true. lots of commentary on the art. Lots of people saying, 
yeah, I'm really looking forward to book six being better. Okay, so you're proving your whole company model, though, your whole business plan by going back to the 80s and reviving these titles and, you know, bringing them up to date. And you're doing the Kickstarter thing, building your fan base on there. So that all sounds like very good news for you guys, man. I think it says something about Kickstarter. Because when you look at the most successful projects on Kickstarter, you see things that came from the 80s. I know. You see Shadow Run, which came from the 80s. You see the Quest for Glory creators, who they released their uh, games in the 80s. You see many big famous names from the 80s making either a new version, a re-release of the original, or a completely new product, and they're just going for the name recognition. And those people make money on Kickstarter. I think what we're seeing is that the people who use Kickstarter as in back projects there are people who grew up in the 80s, are now 30 years old, have a job, and mm-hmm. have money to spend on nostalgia. Are you guys pretty excited, like, thinking of new stuff right now just because you seem to be on this run? Oh, yeah. Got to think about the future. And I said that we've been involved in other projects in the past. We've made friends with these authors uh, from the 80s and 90s, friends with the people involved in Fabled Lands, mm-hmm. obviously also Way of the Tiger, and anyone else who we can reach because authors are really neat people. So working with such educated, intelligent, and creative folks, we can't say for sure what we're going to do in the future, <laughs> but... If you follow, say, the Fabled Lands blog, which right. is just fabledlands.blogspot.com, uh, there have been conversations there about, hey, do we need another book in the Fabled Lands series to go on Kickstarter? Do we need my other project called Blood Sword to go on Kickstarter? And people are interested. Uh, old fans from the 80s right. are reading this and saying, yes, do it. I will give you money. You guys are just playtesting ideas on whatever forum, and then you're like, okay, I think it's time to do this now. I mean, it's just too funny, and it's an incredible opportunity, and I'm totally happy for you guys. I'm glad this, something like this exists, you know, 30 years after the 80s, you know? It's fun. It's really fun. And as you were saying, that being involved in this community, it's a friendly community, just making these people happy seems worthwhile. They come back and say great things to you too, making you feel happy just to have put in the effort yourself. In your video on Kickstarter, you were almost the straight guy compared to the other person who was all uh, over the place. So I expected you to be more of the straight man now. But since that guy is not here overshadowing you... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Jamie Thompson, one of the original <laughs> authors, great person. And it, was gr- it was great that we managed to get him on camera. Right. And you might be able to guess, we recorded my bit first. And so I knew I had to say all the official stuff, all right, this, right, this right. very straight stuff. And then, yes, we managed to get him on camera. Great. Oh, his bit is so much better. Let's put him first. But you're great now, though, when, when he's not here to overshadow. No disrespect to him. No, he's great. Dude, you're a natural, man. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. And for anyone out there, man, you, you're looking for adventure. You're looking for ninjas. You're looking for the, the sequel of 2013. <laughs> of the yep. past 30 years. Go to kickstarter.com and check out Way of the Tiger. 
and it has ninja, like I said, action, action moves. Choose your plot. I don't know if I broke any copyrights by trademarks by saying it. And if you can't no find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links to Richard and his company and his wonderful books. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody. I'm Kenny Beaumont. And I'm John Davenport. And we are the creators of the web series, The Rub. I wanted to say The Rub with you. <laughs> Wait, do it again. Okay. The Rub. Do it with me. We are the creators of The Rub. And this is Johnny. Wow, that almost sounds like, uh, not Johnny Cochran, uh, not Johnny Cochran, uh, Tonight Show. John, Johnny. Oh, Johnny, Johnny Carson. Carson. Yeah, Johnny Carson. All right, yeah, not Cochran Carson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of those guys. Yeah, I'm sorry. Man, how's it going, DJ Grandpa? Oh, everything's going pretty good. Now, I am not secure enough to have a guy give me a massage. I'm just not secure <laughs> enough. Why don't you guys tell me about The Rub? Great title. Thank you very much. Um, that was actually Kenny's idea to call it The Rub. You know, I don't really know where you got that idea, Kenny. Where'd you get it? The origin is kind of interesting because it was a long time ago. Was it Bravo, Johnny, that had a contest Oh my gosh! Yes, yeah. Yes. It was a it was a show that a reality show like from like 2004 or something. With the original idea of this came from. Oh. What was the name well, of the show, Johnny? Well, it was it was a contest. I don't know if it actually made it to the air. It was one of those things that like it was at the time when they really wanted people to get involved in their shows. So there was a contest called Situation Colon Comedy, and they just invited people to pitch their sitcom ideas. And the rub was Kenny's idea. Yeah, and it was uh, basically a kind of um, a fake documentary of following a business, and it was the only legitimate massage parlor in Tampa. And we wrote it kind of more in a sitcom style, like not the style that it actually we ended up shooting earlier this year. So we had like a script that was actually like a three-camera sitcom, more of the style of, you know, set up, punchline, set up, punchline, yeah. Yeah. It didn't go anywhere in the contest, but so we kind of put it on the back burner. And then earlier uh, in the year, Johnny and I kind of found it in a file on our computer. <laughs> we're like, hey, remember this this thing that we wrote? And uh, we're like, yeah, well, since then, the office and Parks and Recreation and, and Modern Family had come out that kind of like mimicked the style of, of a documentary crew covering something, you know? We're like, we're this like, is exactly the way we set up the rub, so... <laughs> Maybe we should shoot that. Yeah, so since then, all this kind of great stuff came out where they kind of did the fake documentary. And we're like, let's let's rewrite it that way. And that's kind of funner to shoot, you know, more fun to edit. I got to say this, another great thing. When we originally conceived the show, it was in Las Vegas. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, that made sense. Like, if we're going on the on the idea that it was a bunch of kind of Sin City area right and the only legitimate place trying to make it it made sense to have it in las vegas and so when we could write anything we wanted you know las vegas was the place this is the best bit do you remember well you may not remember but the republican national convention came to tampa a couple years ago and i live in tampa in the tampa area and there were a lot of local news outlets that were covering that and their angle was they like to talk about how many strip clubs and massage parlors there are in Tampa and how their business always goes up whenever there's a political convention in town. So like that was their whole angle. And I saw a, uh, I saw a statistic that said 
there were more strip clubs in Tampa than there were McDonald's locations. (laughs) (laughs) I called Kenny. I was like, did you hear about this? Like Tampa's got kind of a rep. And then we decided, you know what? (laughs) The rub should be in Tampa because I think it's the new Sin City. And from there, we were able to like really give it a lot of sort of small town-ish flavor. And then the whole concept really came together after that. The name alone is just worth money, the rub. It's got kind of a double meaning. We tried to incorporate some of the Shakespearean sense of the the term where you remember in in Hamlet where Hamlet's uh, contemplating suicide. And then uh, it seems like a good idea. Sure. But then the rub was that in that sleep, what dreams may come? Like, what kind of horrible nightmares are you going to have after you've committed suicide? So it's like taking the easy way out or trying to just shut yourself off from things is only going to invite more problems. So it's not apparent in the seven minutes that we shot right now, but should we get completion funds and we're able to finish the pilot, you'll see that every character actually has some of that injected into them where they're right. at a point in their life where they've made some bad decisions and now they're kind of being haunted by those bad decisions. It's the rub. And everybody's got to face a choice as to whether to close your heart to change and to happiness and to hope and just like trudge on and continue a downward right. spiral or take the harder path, which is like try to stay optimistic, try to stay open and, and try to make your life better and, and fight your way upward. And it's, it's kind of what we're doing with the show, as a matter of fact. I think you guys have a unique opportunity here. I've been listening to this whole thing and you talk about the situation comedy type, you know, people submitting plots and stuff to which network was that again? I think it was Bravo. At Bravo. The time. Okay. And then you guys admitting that you've only shot seven minutes. I'm thinking you guys have a unique opportunity with the Kickstarter community to ask them in which direction do you think this plot should take for the remaining 23 minutes or so? Oh, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. That kind of takes the whole crowdfunding thing to the next level because the campaigns that I've contributed to, I've always been like, this is neat because I can feel like I'm actually a part of their success. Right. And so that kind of actually just raises it up more to like be able to contribute ideas. Now, okay, okay. If anyone's listening, that doesn't mean they're going to actually do what I say. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that it is a good idea if they would think about it. Because I see that it's totally cool. I mean, I see, I don't know. It it just seems cool. I think it's a great idea. I think that if people are willing to fund it, then let's give the people what they want. Okay, is it fair to say if they have an idea, they could go to the comment section of The Rub on Kickstarter and leave a comment? to in which direction they'd like to see the rub go. Absolutely. I think that that's, that's a great idea. And even more specific, if anybody has a horrible massage story, <laughs> please submit that too. I know I have mine. I don't know if Kenny's got his, but it's an awkward situation because you're putting yourself, you're making yourself very vulnerable and putting yourself in someone else's hands, literally. And I feel like um, things can go really bad there. So if anybody has like good ideas for like just something horrible that happened to them, something embarrassing, something sexy, something fun, or you have some fun Tampa stories, or just you know some weirdos and you'd like to see <laughs> them represented, or you just have like a cool plot twist or anything, we're wide open at this point. You're alluding to a weird um, massage story. You mind telling us that in short? My massage story? My yeah. horrible massage story? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> my wife, Michelle, decided to treat me for my birthday to a professional massage, which I'd never had. 
she could see the the envy in my eyes whenever people talk about like, oh, I had a massage and I felt like jelly afterwards and I couldn't move and it was great. <laughs> That's what I want out of my life to be jelly. So she treated me to this. I went in and I uh, had my choice of a male masseuse or a female masseuse. Now, I had been recommended to this guy from all of my wife's friends, who are all females, by the way. And they were like, this guy's the best. Pick him. I don't care who else is there. Get this guy. So I did. I went in. He um, had me disrobe, which is cool, I guess. And uh, I was feeling a little uneasy, but I was trying to leave myself open to experiences (laughs) (laughs) in a matter of speaking. So he came in and he started the massage and it was okay. It took me a while to start relaxing. And I'd say like about 10 minutes in, I finally got to the point where I was like, okay, I think I can trust this guy. That's a long time. Then I hear a sound that sounds a lot like a phone ringing in the room. And I'm thinking, is that my phone? Did I leave my phone on? But I wouldn't do that. So it turns out it's his phone and he answers it. He picks up the phone, takes a phone call in the middle of the session, (laughs) is massaging me with one hand, is talking on the phone with the other. And just when I think it can't get any weirder or less professional than this, it turns out I can, I can figure out that he's talking to his dermatologist (laughs) and he's getting He's getting some bad news. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what kind of skin disease the doctor is telling him that he has, but I am very conscious of the fact that his bare hand is all (laughs) over my back at that exact moment. And he doesn't stop. He's still rubbing and still going, yeah, yeah, yeah. doc. Oh, that's terrible news, doc. Oh, man, that's that's harsh. I'm I'm really sorry to hear that. That's that's oh, man. Yeah, I'll I'll call you back. I'm in the middle of a session. (laughs) He hangs up the phone and I think like, okay, well, that's it. He's going to apologize and disinfect my back and then I can leave. But instead, he like continues with like a half hearted, two handed, more hands now massage of whatever infectious disease he's got. He's rubbing it on me. And then he stops and goes, you know what, man, that was my dermatologist. I just got some really bad news. I'm going to have to stop short. Is that okay? I got to go. <laughs> and I'm like, for the love of God, yes. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like uh, we should definitely stop. So then he smacks me on the shoulder and goes, thanks, bro, and then <laughs> leaves the room. Of course, I immediately grab my phone and call my wife for uh, immediate evac. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never gotten a massage since. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking this is the first time DJ Grandpa's crib has ever sounded as close to a morning show as this moment right here. <laughs> no, it's because it's, it's we're laughing at our own jokes, I think. <laughs> also, there's that sound effects machine I brought in. Hang on, let me get some. <laughs> if anybody can top that, let us know. I say hats off to you, man, because... It wasn't just my hat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that that makes it worse. But, but it's more than I could have done. <laughs> Not my finest hour. Well, neither his, so... Yeah, it wasn't great for anyone. (laughs) Well, luckily, I got the results back, and it really wasn't that bad. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) So that gray spot on my back, that's unrelated? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, great. I I no longer moonlight as a uh, masseuse, so... (laughs) Good thing you guys could still stay friends. Friends is a strong word. Anyone out there, you want to check out an awkward trailer... (laughs) <laughs> go to kickstarter.com and type in the rub r-u-b and you'll see where some of the material for this episode that you're listening to right now has come from <laughs> it's important to note that in the show it's the only legitimate massage parlor 
oh, in Tampa. Oh yes, I yes, you should stress that because I I, I may have been um I may have been a little um premature <laughs> with that, you know. Well, you know, it's um, it's kind of a way of having our cake and eating it too, because that way we get to tell we get to live in the world of just horribly dirty stories, but we have essentially clean, upbeat characters who are doing their best and failing because people expect that this is a uh, a slightly illegitimate uh, establishment. That is good enough for a Seinfeld episode or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough for the show about nothing. Right. And if you can't find it there, if you have a hard time, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll have links for these two gentlemen and point you in the right direction. And, and please, if you can... Uh, think of some plot ideas and into their little contest there. We'll, we'll call it a little contest, but I think it would be cool. I mean, how many times do you get to judge a TV series in its infancy? Check it out. I'd like to thank you two gentlemen for giving me a chance to talk to you and for coming on the crib. Uh, thanks, DJ Grandpa. We are real people with honest dreams, so we knew we were in the right place. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's Crip. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks and Bertram Zeke, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rupert.